history uh, this morning that you may or may not be interested in. Uh, but when I first uh, came here uh, as a member and kind of grew up in my relationship with the Lord here at Diamond Hill and uh, first got introduced to the terrifying prospect of leading a Sunday school class and, and later some discipleship sessions, uh, one, of the, one of the anxieties I always had was uh, speaking in front of anyone and I remember some of you may remember Martha Childs, but Martha was very frank uh, in her in her speaking, and I was uh, complaining uh, about this overwhelming anxiety I had to the point of perilous paralyzation uh, in my ability to think in any order whatsoever, and and I was complaining about that and whining, I guess you would say, and Martha, in her customary frankness, just looked at me and she said, "Larry, that's just pride." And I mean, it was just like you hit me in the head with a baseball bat and I realized she's right. Uh, the reason I'm so anxious is because I'm going to the podium or to the pulpit so dependent upon my abilities uh, that I'm paralyzed. Uh, and from that day on, uh, I've, I've tried to make it a practice of relying upon the Lord uh, for the words. Uh, Brother Shane and I were talking in conversation and uh, almost write out a manuscript, uh, but, I, but I've never bring that manuscript with me to the pulpit simply because uh, I feel tied to it and I feel like I can't think in an orderly way. Uh, and so I never come to the pulpit without anything. Sometimes it's just a note, sometimes it's a rough outline, sometimes it's just a couple of uh, things. Uh, sometimes I just have the Bible. Uh, but in all those times, I'm always really sensitive to my need for the Lord. Uh, and I think I feel freer now to speak about those things that I have a firm grasp upon, uh, that I've studied out and uh, I've done the battle in the text. And the Lord through the Spirit has brought things and given me strong convictions and clarities. And, and those things I feel more at liberty not to need uh, notes or uh, extensive manuscripts to keep my, my thoughts aligned. Well, today's different. Uh, today's very much different. And the reason that is, is because in John 14, uh, we weighed very, very heavily into the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and that is a there are things that are clear in the scriptures that we hold fast to and we, in fact, build a Christology or a Christology around those clear doctrines. Uh, but I was sharing with the kids this morning uh, just uh, in my mind how this works. In, in the passages that we'll look at, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And, I, and so I just draw a circle. Okay, the, there's the Father. Jesus is in the Father. So I drew another ring. And then, what? Jesus said, the Father's in me. So I draw another ring inside Jesus. And then, well, Jesus said, uh, I'm in the Father. So I draw and on and on and on. I go with these little rings and I put the Spirit in there as well. And pretty soon I just go into infinity, putting one in the other. And the, in the interesting thing is this, this is God. It is not inconsistent to say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that each are distinct in their persons and specifically in their functions in our redemption. So, so we're wading out into very, very deep water. And so I, I, I want to follow more of a manuscript today. And so if you see me feeling or if you feel as though I feel somewhat bound, it is because I, I, dare, not, I dare not be in error here because 
Christology is the root of many heresies. Docetism, Ebionism, Modalism, all sorts of early church heresies that are even present today in, in maybe, uh, maybe alternative forms, but the principles of those heresies are still being embraced today. And, and we are in danger always if we lose sight of a biblical Christology that we will be drawn away or drift into these heresies unbeknownst to us. And so that's why uh, I feel insecure in preaching without some notes that will help me guide my thoughts and certainly the scripture references as well. So turn with me to John, uh, the gospel of John chapter 14. We ended... Uh, really an introduction to John 14 on Wednesday night. And we really left off in verse 6 in, in some conversations uh, afterward. Uh, I believe it was Brother Shane that uh, we were talking about uh, the idea that they're, they're what we would consider heretical uh, people calling themselves Christians who would agree with us in that statement, Jesus is the way. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but my me. And I think we mentioned in specific uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I think many of the prosperity people today would say, yes, we agree with that. And so the problem is, uh, how do we discern? What, is, what does that mean? And I entitled the message this morning, A, a Necessary Unity. And that's what uh, I called a buddy this week in the middle of the week. And my heart was just exploding uh, with, with the clarity I believe God was giving me in the study of the text. And I just couldn't resist to share it with somebody. Unfortunately, he was doing something. He couldn't talk to me. And I just, I was so disappointed. And so, so I'm scrambling to write down what I'm understanding here. And I hope that God will help you to do that in your own relationship with him this morning. So let's read. I want to stop in verse 15, but we'll actually extend in comments uh, even to verse 31. But I want you to pay specific attention to something. When he gets to verse uh, 7 particularly and following, I want you to, I want you to pay very close attention to the words. Uh, when, when I read this, the reason I want notes today to guide my thinking and to kind of help me think in logical order is because they're just coming at you like crazy. Uh, I am in the Father. The Father's in me. The words that I speak, it's the work of the Father coming out of me. And the Spirit who comes, uh, He will guide you into all truth. And I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Well, you just said the Spirit's coming to us. Is it you or the Spirit? And so there's this language that's... In our mind, it's all over the place, and we feel overwhelmed by that. And sometimes we just say, okay, I believe the Trinity. Let's move on. But, but to do that is to, is to miss the glory of the triune nature of God. And most importantly, it's necessity in your redemption. If it's not that, you don't have redemption. So listen, listen to the words. Jesus begins this with what I call bookends. Verse 14, 1, do not let your heart be troubled. And just quickly looking ahead, uh, he says it in the verse 27 again, let not your heart be troubled. And he adds this, nor let it be fearful. So this is bookends and everything in between is critical to, to, the, to the imperative to begin with and the closing remark. If you don't 
grasp this or get hold of this, you will have trembling hearts, troubled hearts. You will have fearful hearts. But if you get this, it is the remedy itself for troubled hearts or fearful hearts. So he begins, do not let your heart be troubled. Two imperatives here. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, this is another one of those phrases, from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us? And not to the world. And Jesus answered him, said, said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Uh, just let me pause here. At this point, are you not going, what? What in the world? I can't keep track of this. Everything he said seems to lead off in another direction. And I'm trying to corral all these thoughts in. Wait a minute. And that's what I was doing this week. One verse at a time. I'd follow this track and, I'd, and, I, and it's like it disappears into the, to the distance. And I'd come back and try to start again, follow that one. And I'd think, well, no, let me follow this one. And I'm doing this all week. And I'm thinking, these are going in different directions. I'm not, I'm not getting this. And that's exactly how you feel, it seems, when you're reading this. Jesus 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, but do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Fearful. You heard that I said I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. That verse, that phrase right there alone has set into motion all sorts of heresies. Verse 29, now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word and the profound mysteries into which we get a glimpse through this word uh, are stunning, to say the least. And Lord, even as I read that over again, I feel the overwhelming weight of it all. Lord, it feels as though we're grasping to hold on, to understand, to, to get some sense of what, what is being taught here, what is being communicated to us. And Father, if it's in your word, it's profound and it's true and it's necessary for us to understand. And so we need your help this morning. Father, we'll approach this by nature with fleshly minds and we'll try to, uh, by nature, figure it out. And Father, I acknowledge before you and before these people this morning that there is no figuring out the very nature of God. And for us to understand anything, we will need you to reveal it to us. Make it so for the glory of Christ and for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Spirit this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And that was in response to what Thomas had said previously, uh, which is, amounts to a statement and a comment in verse 5. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going or how do we know the way where you're going. There's two parts of that. There's a confession from John, uh, from Thomas. Uh, notice he uses the word we, so it's not just Thomas. All the disciples are scratching their head. Jesus is talking about many rooms, going to the Father, preparing a place, coming again, taking you back to those rooms. I shared Wednesday night that I believe he was using really a marriage, uh, a betrothal and marriage and taking a bride analogy there. They understood that, but they must have been thinking, how does that relate to this? I mean, you're going away. You've already told us uh, in, in previous conversations in this same room that the hour has come that you would be lifted up. What does that have to do with this? Our hearts are troubled. And so, and so Jesus says to them, or he says to Thomas in verse 4, or to all the disciples, he says to them, you know the way. You know the way. Well, Thomas directly contradicts that, and he says, we don't know the way. The only way we can know the way is to know the where, and we don't know where. And so we don't know the way. And Jesus responds to that and says, I am the way. And then he adds the truth and the life. If you go through the passages that unfolded after, afterwards, Jesus addresses both of those, the spirit of truth 
And then he says, if you have believed in me, you are speaking of life. Because I live, you will also live. So Jesus is unfolding now how he is not only the way, but he is the truth and he is the life. And so I think in a nutshell, what is being established here for the disciples is that Jesus is, in fact, God. I mean, that's foundational to the Christian faith. That's why those heresies, those people that would accept verse 6 and and build their whole doctrine and religion upon their acceptance of that verse 6, if they deny that Jesus is God, they they are outside of the faith and they are not, Jesus is not for them the way, the truth, and the life. They have made another Jesus and fashioned a Jesus according to their own preferences and have walked away from the one who is the way. And if you don't go that way, By Jesus, as he describes himself, there is no other way to the Father. That's what he makes very clear. So John's his first confession. We don't know where you're going. As I mentioned, he says we, not just me. I don't know where you're going. He says we. Maybe there's some discussion amongst themselves. And they said, what does he mean where where he's going? Going to the Father? What, What is he talking about? We don't know where he's going. And they all probably agree. How can we know the way if we don't know the destination. And I thought to myself, that is exactly how men think. They think I have to know the destination before I know the way. I shared Wednesday night. If you say we're going to Myrtle Beach or Nags Head, North Carolina, I know the destination. I can get out a map book and figure out the way. Because I know where I am and I know where I'm going. But Jesus is offering something completely difficult for them to grasp. He's saying to them, no, in this case, you have to know the way to know the where. You're not going to, you wouldn't understand the where if I told you. I just told you and you're still wondering where the where is. You don't know the where because you must know the way before you know the where. You're never going to know what I'm talking about when I say the Father's house until you come to know the way and the truth and the life. So that's the common understanding. So so his conclusion, uh, Thomas's conclusion in that is how do we know the way? And of course, Jesus says in verse 4, as I mentioned, you do know the way. <laughs> I wrote this in my notes. What did they know that they didn't know? Or what didn't they know they knew? <laughs> this, this is descriptive of my dilemma as I studying this way. What do you know that you don't know? Or what is it that you don't know you don't know? Or that, what is it do you know you don't know? And it just, it just gets overwhelming. But that's the gist of it. They know Jesus. They just don't know him as the way. Because Thomas has already said, we don't know the way. And Jesus is essentially saying, yes, you do know the way. Well, no, we don't. We just, we just told you we don't know the way. And the reason we don't know the way is because we don't know where we're going. And Jesus understands that he is the way. And I think when he says, you know the way, he means you know me. What it is, is you just don't know me as the way. And that's what's critical. Jesus can't be the way unless you know the Jesus who is the way. And that's about what, that's what he's about to unfold. That's why Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are outside the Christian faith. That's why gospel prosperity preachers are outside the Christian faith. Because they craft a Jesus according to their own preferences and then say that this Jesus is the way. No, no, no. He is not. This Jesus is the way. The one who is about to describe himself as the way and the truth and the life. 
So they did not yet know the fullness of Christ's identity. He is God, and they, they got some things right, but they didn't know the fullness of that. What is the implications of that? Here's a question I would ask you, just inserting here. Do you, do you ever wonder why, why the triune nature of God and the incarnation, fully God and fully man, do you ever wonder why it has to be that way for redemption? In other words, do you acknowledge the triune nature of God, the, the foundational Christian doctrine of the Trinity? Do you say, yes, I believe in the Trinity. I've read the Westminster Confession and all the catechism. We believe that God is one in three persons. I believe that. But do you ever wonder how that's related to your redemption? How, why is it critical that Jesus is both fully man and fully God in relation to your redemption? Because if you don't think about that, then you don't understand what he means by, I am the way. And that's what I really wanted to look at this morning. So Jesus answers the question in verse 6. In a word, he says, I am the way, Thomas. Essentially, in verse 4, Jesus is saying, you know me, the way. But Thomas' question indicates that they not know that Jesus fully or as the way. And so the verses unfolding afterwards constitute Jesus' explanation of what makes him the way. I shared uh, Shane and I's conversation briefly and, and others that were gathered around there as, as well. We left off our study on Wednesday night with that observation and really, really in somewhat from the pulpit, at least, excuse me, uh, left it unaccounted for. And so that's, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to listen for God's accounting of that, of the question that was raised. Lots of people say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Lots of people would confess you can't get to God, uh, the Father, without Him. How do we distinguish between what they say when they're clearly outside of the household of faith and we who hold fast to the same statement are within the household of faith? How do you make that distinction? It might be summarized, this passage, I think, is one of the earliest and most uh, articulate descriptions of the Trinitarian doctrine. What is described illuminates the unity and the activity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each personally and distinctively bringing to pass all that God has decreed from eternity. That's what is being described here. And this is weighing into the infinitely profound realities of how it is that God is one, yet three distinct persons. Good luck exhausting that. But by all means, attempt to grasp it. Because your, the glory of Christ in your salvation rests upon your efforts to grasp this. If you miss this, you miss the glory of Christ and the glory of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So speaking here, the unity and relationship of the Father and the Son... Let me go back to chapter 14, verse 1, and this is kind of following up Wednesday, but maybe with more force or more detail. There are two imperatives there. I read that Wednesday night. Those two words, believe. Uh, some people like to consider the first an indicative. You believe in God. That's a statement of, of, of fact. Believe also in me, as that's the imperative. They are both imperatives. And I hope you understand the immediate implication of that. He's saying two things to them. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Command. You should do this. And in the same breath says, believe in me also. 
I mean, the, the laying of those two imperatives out side by side have huge implications. The first, in some ways, the world, much of the world might agree. Believe in God. Yes, we do. The many of the world might say. And under some, um, some paradigm that we might not agree with, there are many. There are Muslims who believe in God. There, there are other religions that have a belief in a God. And so the world might say, yes, you don't want to have a troubled heart, believe in God. And the Muslim would say amen, and the cultist would say amen, and, and the, uh, many others would say amen. But then Jesus lays out alongside that in parallel fashion, equally imperative, believe in me also. And that is stunning. Either Jesus is God, or he's encouraging or blasphemous in the statement, or encouraging them to become less than monotheistic. Because he's laying that out equally here. Believe in God, command. Believe in me, also command. If he is not God, then he is drawing the disciples, his own disciples, away from the, from the believing in God and to split that belief under someone who is other than God and therefore less than God. So a lot's at stake here, but Jesus lays the foundation right off the bat. Two imperatives. Believe in God, believe also in me. The laying out side by side of the imperatives communicates an equality of actions, namely, believing essentially equating the belief in one with belief in the other. That's the emphasis. That's the imperative. It's the belief that he's speaking of here. There is an equality between believing in God and believing in the Son. You do no wrong, but you do not betray believing in God when you believe in the Son. The equality is in the actions mentioned here. Certainly in the persons, Jesus is God. So it is not wrong to have the same action. Believe in God. Yes, that's a command. Believe in me also. Either he's God or he is moving or he is contradicting himself and undermining his own uh, claim, as it were. These are not two opposite things or alternative things. These are, in essence, by Jesus' words, the same thing. That's the answer he gives initially for the troubling hearts. Do not let your hearts troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It is good. It is proper that you believe in me as you believe in God. And the only way that can be proper and right is if Jesus is, in fact, God. Notice as well, I wrote here, to deny the deity of Jesus, God incarnate, and by necessity, if you do that, if you deny the deity of Jesus, the God incarnate, and by necessity, you are left without access, therefore, no way to the Father. I am the way. If you, if you don't get this, believe in God, believe also in me, then you, you, you make absent from you a way to the Father. You're not going to the Father. In other words, you're never going to know the destination unless you understand that I'm the way. They don't, they don't come first. I don't tell you where you're going and then tell you I'm the way to get there. I'm telling you, you can't have possibly fathom where you're going unless you know me. Because if you don't know me as who I am, then you have no other pathway to that Father. Other than the one at the resurrection in the judgment day. Secondly here, so Jesus asserts that. Secondly, Jesus displays in this also... 
In fact, 1 John 2, 18, 24 identifies that as the spirit of Antichrist. He says, he says in that passage that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And what does the spirit of Antichrist say? That, Jesus, that God, Jesus, has not come in the flesh. They, they're denying this very thing. And so they are cut off from away to the Father. They are Antichrist. They're, they're eliminating him as a means to get to the Father, and by doing so, eliminated from themselves any other means to get there. And Jesus notices well in 1 John 2.18, just a side note here, these people who were saying this went out from us. They were religious people. They were the, they were the ones who did not get the deity of Christ and were, went out declaring things with their fleshly minds and wound up being anti-Christ. They came out from the body of those who were professing to believe in Jesus, just as they are in our own day. The heretics that we would identify as heretical. Here's another interesting thing in verse 2. But did you notice here that Jesus demonstrates or exhibits here a firsthand knowledge of the Father's house? He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he goes on to say, I'm preparing a place for you. So Jesus has an intimate, personal knowledge of the realm of the Father's house. Nobody else could say that. Jesus is speaking here from experience, not doctrinal statements. Jesus has been, has been residing with the Father. I mean, it, it reinforces that He is, in fact, God. In my Father's house, certainly God is, is His Father in this sense, but He's been there. He's, he's talking about a place where none of us have been. In John 3, 13, this is written, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He can speak from experience of what's in the Father's house because He came from the Father's house. So he's, he's doubling down. Not only is he saying, believe in me is equated with belief in God for I am God. And not only that, I dem further demonstrate that I am God in that I have a personal knowledge of the Father's house. I descended down from there. I'm not just going to there the first time. That's where I came from. I can speak authoritatively of what the environment of the Father's house is, is because that's where I came from. I mean, that's, that's strong. I mean, I can tell you about the Father's house, but I'm drawing all my information from the Scriptures, and, and I can preach a series on heaven and lay out a description of what heaven will be like. But I've not been there, and I certainly didn't descend from there. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. I came from there. I descended down from the Father's presence, and I'm going back to the Father. I am telling you authoritatively that there are many rooms there. And that I am going to make preparation, he would add as well. Jesus is speaking from his experience here. Notice as well in verse 2. But Jesus is demonstrating here that, uh, that he is the one who cannot by his very nature speak untruthfully. I've never caught this before and I was studying it again this week. But after he says that, he says to them, if it were not true, I would have told you. And, and I hear that in a fleshly thing. And in other words, if I told you that, I'd say, I ain't lying. I'd say it that way. I think Jesus is speaking more authoritatively in regards to his nature in his role as God. If this were not true by my own nature, I would have had to have told you. 
I have spoken to you truth and I cannot lie by my very nature. If it were not so, I would have told you. I must have told you if it were not so. What you're hearing is truth. And it's truth declared by one who cannot lie, one who can do nothing but speak truth. And I am speaking from the experience of having been in the Father's house that there is a place there for you. Let not your heart be troubled. This is God speaking. This is God speaking. And when he says, if it were not true, I would have told you, he means that. I would not, I would not have, I would cease to be God if I let you believe something that was not true. I would have told you. Out of my very nature. I wrote this. If he were to speak what was not true of the Father's house, it would render him, it would render idolatrous his first imperative, which was first believe also in me. If he's lying to us about the Father's house, then he's, then he's heretical or idolatrous in drawing us away from belief in God to believe in him in the same way. So everything's riding on Jesus being truthful here. And he asserts that he is. In verse 2 and also in verse 3 again, he is the one only possessing a righteousness which permits his going to the Father. He says there in that verse, I go to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. Now, I, I left off of this because this is one of them paths I followed that it, it became so overwhelming so quickly that I said, that's sufficient. Now, let's go back and stay on course. But Exodus 32, 20, you'll remember the instance when Moses is there upon the mountain and he says, Lord, show me your glory. And you remember what the Lord says to him, verse, chapter 33, verse 20 in Exodus. He says, you cannot see my face. You can't see my face. Moses, for no man can see me and live. If you see me and live, you're something more than a son of Adam. It's impossible, Moses, that you should see me. In fact, not, not separate from Christ, the Lord says, but here's what I'll do. I'll give you a glimpse of my glory. So you go over here in this rock that has been cleft in two, that has been broken, and you get inside that rock, and I will seal you in with my hand, and I'm going to walk by. And when I get past you, I'm going to remove my hand, and you're going to get this flash of glory. And Moses, beholding that glory, comes down from the mountain, and his face is glowing. And he puts a veil over his face, and because specifically he says so that the people won't see that fading away. <laughs> they, they, they won't... They won't see it fading away from the experience. So powerful was the backside of the glory of God. But he clearly says nobody's going to see God and live. Well, that's interesting because Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. Something, something about Jesus will bring him into the presence of the Father without dying or without being incinerated in the face of the Father, in the glory and the holiness of the Father. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. It goes on to talk about all of us. There is none, none of us, none of us. There is only one righteous who can go into the presence of the Father and not immediately be killed by the radiance and the power of the glory and the holiness of God. Jesus says, I'm going. I'm going to the Father. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's going into the presence of the Father. Psalm 51, 5, 
The psalmist writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin sin my mother conceived me. I wrote this, Jesus must be more than a son of Adam. He must be without sin if he is to go to the Father. Because to do so otherwise would would involve immediately immediate destruction, or as it were, or judgment upon him. For the same reasons, one only without personal sin can prepare a place with the Father for men otherwise sinful in themselves. In other words, you can't prepare the place. Somebody other than a sinful man has to ascend into the heavens to make the preparation because he he can't come into the presence of God, he can't see the face of God and live unless he's something more than a sinful-natured son of Adam. He has to be something more. Yes, he has to be fully man, but there has to be something more involved in this person who would dare go into the presence of God and who, by the way, would make preparation for sinners someday to to come into the presence of God and live live. It's important. Only a righteous one can come again. You ever think about this? I kind of read past this. He doesn't say, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. He says, if I do that, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again. Well, we already know the preparation of the place is going to involve his dying upon the cross. But he says to them, I'm coming again to get you. (laughs) The preparation And the dying involved in the preparation is not the end of the story. I'm coming back. Well, I got news for you. There's only one way you come back from the wages of sin, which is death. And that's resurrection. Jesus says in verse 3, I will come again. Genesis 2, 17 says, In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Speaking of sin and, and disobedience in the garden. Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, all have seen and fallen short of the glory of God. I've said this over and over throughout my Christian life, and particularly in preaching and teaching, that the wages of sin is death. I've never seen the wages withdrawn from from the strategy. The wages of sin is always death. I've always said our problem is not avoiding death. Our problem is how to figure out how to die and be and still live. That's the real problem because the wages of sin are death. You have sinned and by nature you are a sinner. There must be the death of a sinner somewhere. The problem is you can't receive the death and rise again. Namely because your death will not ever answer to the debt that is owed for sinning against an infinitely holy God. One of the reasons I don't believe in annihilationism it's because the debt, the, the presumption there is that some point the death will have been sufficient to, to balance or equal the infraction against an infinitely holy God. And annihilationism would, would indicate that you suffered and suffered and suffered and finally you were obliterated and you no longer exist in the universe. Therefore, the debt has been paid. The reason hell is an eternal dying and eternal death is because your death and my death will never be sufficient to pay the debt. So when you hear people say, well, I don't believe hell is eternal. That's what you tell them. At what point in hell and in the duration in hell will will you have come to the place to where you have purchased by your suffering the the debt that was owed to the one against whom you suffered? It'll never happen. So there is only one righteous who can come again to receive us to the Father. 
having already foretold of his death in chapter 12, verses 27, and again in 31 and 32, his promise of coming again necessitates his resurrection from the dead. As I mentioned, there is a debt to be paid for sin, and it is death, and one rising from the dead requires that the death be paid, and only upon full payment can life be taken up again. Do you know that's what Acts 2.24 indicates? In other words, he gave himself over to death. And the reason, you ever think about this? The reason Jesus rose from the death is because having paid the debt, death had no longer, no legal authority to hold him in death. The reason you'll be dying or in death eternally is because you will never relieve the dead and therefore death itself has legal, legal, legal right to hold you into death for eternity. It could not do that to Jesus. It could not do that to Jesus. In fact, this is related as well to the virgin birth. Jesus was not a son of Adam. He was a son of God. And Jesus embraced. I was thinking about this this morning. My heart was just overwhelmed. But Jesus takes sinners to himself. And I think baptism communicates this well. Not after we're saved, but before we become redeemed. And he takes us with himself down into the, down into the sufferings of the cross. And there we are made able to die and, and in him and while, while shielded or hid away in his righteousness. And once he dies, the perfect man dies, as it were, for sin substitutionary. Then the debt has been paid and those who have been united to him rise up with the living Christ. That's glorious. That's glorious. That's why the Lord's Supper and the two ordinances God gives to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are both pointing towards this union because you cannot, you cannot not have died with Christ and be raised with Christ. Romans 6 is very clear. Those who have been baptized into Christ, those who have died with Christ, shall also live with Christ. There is no life without being joined to Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Don't you think that's glorious? I, I could almost imagine the scene. Christ goes down into the grave, down into death, and there endures what was due eternally for the sufferings of sin, of the sin of the elect, and, and He takes to Him and, and He endures the fullness of the wrath of God due that death which would take us eternity, would never be paid into us of ourselves. But because He is Christ, because He is both fully God and man, He endures the absolute fullness of the wrath of God due those sins. And at some point in the grave there, exhaust the dead. And it is released at that point. And death said, I can't hold Him anymore. I can't keep Him in the grave. And the death is holding and pulling Him down and pulling Him down. And finally, the dead is played, paid, the stamp is given, and the death's grip just breaks away, and the risen Christ rises up from the dead. That's Easter, folks. That's what we celebrate, the resurrection of the dead. Only Jesus, fully God, fully man, can make that possible. Not a prophet not a godly man, not a mom, not a dad, not a preacher, not a Sunday school teacher. No one can pay off or fulfill the debt that we owe except Jesus. And he, and he can only do it because by virtue of his very nature, fully God and fully man. Love, Acts 2.24. Philip's interesting. Verse 8, after Jesus establishes this, Philip in verse 8 says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough. Some mysterious truths in verse 7 and then 9 through 20. Just to, just to rattle off a couple. 
There's Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, each acting as one, each of whom is worthy of worship as God. To see the Son is to see the Father, Jesus says in verse 9. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of His glory. Jesus is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Again, the Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son. The words of the Son are the manifestations of the Father's work in the Son. Believe the words, works, all of Christ's life, in fact, in verse 11, overwhelming. And I would encourage you to take some time and follow each of those out. But the essence of what he's saying there is there is a unity, there is a oneness between Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all three persons acting as one God manifesting, as it were, fulfilling their specific roles in the redemption of humanity or in the redemption of God's people, as it were. And that's what you see unfolding there. Many things he says there in verse 12, greater works. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also in greater works than he will do because I go to the Father. Greater, I think, in the sense of... Since the Holy Spirit, he says later, will come to dwell in, in, the, in, in the very essence, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is God, will dwell in us and make possible what Jesus was doing, but make it possible in every individual believer's life all throughout the nations. I mean, that's a great work. I mean, at this point... The teaching of Jesus was isolated to the disciples and those that they were share. But because He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because He is God and fully man and fully God and going to make purchase for us, all these things will be magnified now by the individual dwelling of God Himself in every believer. That's stunning to me as well. Uh, I asked the children this morning, but do you ever do this unconsciously? Maybe do you rank Father, Son, and Spirit? Do you say, well, the Father is the Father. <laughs> I mean, He's the head. And the Son is somewhat less than Him. And then the Spirit is under that. Well, the reality is that Father, Son, and Spirit are God. And so if, if the Spirit is God, and He is one with the Father and the Son, if the Spirit dwells in me, the Father and Son are dwelling in me as well. The fullness of the Godhead is dwelling within you. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary. It ought to be convicting of sin because everything you and I are doing today and tomorrow, we're doing in the very presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But it ought to be encouraging because that same God is dwelling in us, praying and interceding for us according to the will of God to bring about His purposes in our life. Glorious reality there. Glorious reality. Greater works than these will we do. So much more here. But I wanted to leave with 1 Corinthians 4, which you hear me cite all the time. There's a reason that we don't grasp this reality more than we do. Number one, we don't grasp it at all apart from Jesus Christ because the God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not understand or see or behold something very specific, the light of the glory of the gospel. And, and later he defines that as the glory of God, the glory of Christ or the glory of God in the face of Christ. They don't, you don't see this. 
And I would suggest to you that even as believers, because of the sanctification process, the the blind is not fully removed. We're still seeing through a a, a veil kind of darkly. It's obscure to us because we have a lifetime of being blind. And only now are we beginning to see. Remember the the one who was healed and and the first phase of that, he was a healing and, and they asked him what he sees. And he says, I see men moving around, but they look like trees. He could see He'd he'd been healed from his blindness. The scales were being removed, but his vision wasn't really, really clear yet. And so we are today. So we read passages like this. We're overwhelmed by them. We strain to grasp the reality of these things. And in our fatigue and in our faithlessness, we walk away from those things. And we put it over in the corner somewhere as a foundational Christian doctrine. And we have no clue how it's related to our having been born again. It is this Jesus who is both fully God and fully man. Some people say truly God, truly man. It it requires that this Jesus make sacrifice to redeem us to himself so that the veil might be removed and the light might be shown in our heart so that we would look at Jesus and see in his face the glory of God for that is who he is. And we walk away from that thinking that it has little relationship to our redemption itself. Well, I say to you with all my heart this morning, it is in no other. There is a reason Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man is coming to the Father but through me. And you can name the name of Jesus. You can throw it out on your moniker. You can wear t-shirts that say it all day long. But if he is not the Jesus who he claims to be here, he is no way for you or anybody else to the Father. We are under condemnation and are awaiting the fullness of the wrath of God to come upon us. But if he is, in fact, who he says he is here, there is a way to the Father that brings us into the presence of the Father without being incinerated in the presence of such holiness as that. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. I said Wednesday night, this is why Paul came into those cities seeking to know nothing but him, Christ and him crucified because that is the key to his being the way for us as well. Here's my question today. Is Jesus that to you? I think some people look at the scriptures and they find all the areas of servanthood for Jesus and the essence of Christianity is that, that I just need to mimic his service. Well, to what end? To what end? To proclaim him down the road someday as the most perfect and wonderful example of servitude? Is that it? Is it to miss him as redeemer, as God in human flesh come down to redeem his people? Is to set that aside in some ivory tower and doctrinal theological book somewhere and that not have practical implications in the way you live your Christian life and even in the way you serve? Is to rob as it were, God of the very glory that is due Him. I fear that we do that enough already. We do that far too much already. But we can begin to change that by spending some time beholding and meditating upon just who this Jesus is. And this is the one who redeemed us and the one whom we follow. Stand with me this morning. Thank you for your patience. As I... 
grasp and hold tentatively or hold fragilely these truths. Uh, here's just an interesting thought. During the week as I was working through this, there would be moments and fleeting. I mean, so fleeting that you just missed it. But there would be moments that this would connect and they would just, my heart would just like that. And it, and it, it went away. <laughs> I reached for it and grabbed at it and I tried to pull it back and file it in my understanding cabinet and, and go back and refer to that. But it disappeared. It just, it, just, it just faded away and then I was grieving in my heart and then I would study some more and it would do it again and it, would, it was just the excitement came again and then I grabbed out for it and it slipped away again and I was, found myself groaning in, in sorrow and rejoicing in the Spirit at the same moment. Because the light was flashing. The glory was, it was like a lightning bolt. Boom! And I caught this glimpse and I was humble because I said to myself, Oh, how I have woefully fallen short of beholding and rejoicing in the glory of Christ. And then I would study some more and it would connect again. And I'm seeing that and seeing that. And that's where my heart is this morning. Have you tasted of that glory? It'll change your life. It will change your life. You will not be the same afterwards. And you'll never be satisfied by anything but Christ from that day forward. There'll be nice times and there'll be encouraging times, but everything will fall short of the manifestation of the glory of God in Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope, sure and steadfast, that we have in Christ. Lord, I am convinced that if we grasp the reality that Jesus unfolds in these passages, it truly will be cause for the absence of troubled hearts. Fear will vanish completely away. And Father, I pray that for myself and for everyone in this room this morning, that the weight and the glory and the profound, marvelous, extraordinary realities described here would come clear more clearly to us by your Spirit. And that in it doing so, that we might find stability and comfort and rest. And as Jesus says later in this text, peace I leave with you. This is the peace, not the peace the world gives. And Father, I pray that that might be our experience this morning. For the sake and in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask, amen.